Okay, let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 23, and I'm going to read um, verses 1 through 13, and then we'll pray. 1 Samuel 23, this is 1 through 13. Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? And then so David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. And when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand. For he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah for the purpose of besieging David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. And David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, Your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down here. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600 at this point, so they're gaining momentum here, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah. And they came wherever, um, wherever they would go. And when Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave, up the exp- he gave up the expedition. This is God's word for today. Lord Jesus, would you please lead us through this text? I pray that your Holy Spirit would come upon me. Lord, that I could deliver the word that you have today skillfully and well. Lord, help me to get out of your way, surrender to you. I pray that all of our hearts would be listening. This whole passage is about discerning your voice, hearing your word. Would we hear your word this morning, please? In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Verse 1 says, Then they told David, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and they are robbing the threshing floor. So David, we've been studying the life of David on Sunday mornings and David is now on the run and there is a significant price out for his head. He's an enemy of the state. He is um, being hunted like an animal by King Saul. Saul considers him the greatest threat in the nation to national security instead of the Philistines. Instead of other things, his obsession with David has now eclipsed his vision and, and, and 
uh, sight to the point where all he can see is David. He's completely obsessed and so threatened in the core of his being that his policy, the way he's leading the nation, the way he's running the nation is all kind of being couched around and driven by this obsession with David. That's what's going on. David, at this point, has gained some followers. He's got 400 men at the beginning of this. Um, guys who were fairly comfortable at one point in the cave of Adullam, but God, through the prophet Gad, told David to leave the place of safety in this cave of Adullam and go to a place of danger right into the land of Judah, which is Saul's backyard, basically. David, I mean, I'm sure had to have wondered at this point, why would you have me leave <laughs> this place where I'm feeling finally safe, finally get some rest and some security and go into the thick of it, in, into the battle, um, a place of safety right into where Saul wanted him. And God wanted David to be in a position, I think, where he could serve and bless God's people. That's where this, this if you notice one thing about this passage, David is functionally acting the way the king should. And God is treating David the way he's having David do what Saul is now refusing to do. There's a, there's two, there's a threat here. The Philistines are robbing the threshing floor. I mean, in an agrarian society, this was a major problem, siphoning their goods. It was a direct threat to the people, and yet Saul could not see that. Saul is going after David, so God uses the one that he's anointed king, even though he's not installed yet, God is saying, even in the midst of your trouble, even in the midst of your own problems, even in the midst of your own self, I'm going to have you be others focused and go save these people. And that's one thing that I think, one thing that we need to learn from the wilderness. The wilderness does not give us entitlement to only think about ourselves. When we're going through our own pain and we're going through our own suffering, God does not minimize that, but remember what we talked about last week, use your suffering well. Don't waste your suffering. God is going to use that to be more and more, uh, he's, and this is what we don't expect from God. This is such a God move. What if it's your, we, we tend to come to God thinking, once this area is fixed, then I can serve you more. Or once I, once I have this part of my life all cleaned up, then I can engage more in ministry, or then I'll be who I think I should be, or then I'll, or sometimes it's even undefined, or just then I'll be whatever it is that I know I'm supposed to be but feel I'm lacking now. We just have this undefined thing. Where that, we need to learn throughout all of the Bible, this pattern is that God wants to use your weakness. He wants to use your limp. He wants to use your hurts. That was a reference to Jacob. He wants to use your limp, that very thing that you struggle with, to bless others, to release grace in other people, uh, God's grace in other people's lives. What if you were to think, in fact, take a moment now, what is that thing or those things or those people or that weakness or that obsession or whatever it is that is tripping you up that you tend to think it's holding you back? I, I want to ask you, what if it's not? What if it's not holding you back, at least the way you think it is? Sure, it's holding you back in the sense that you wish it wasn't there. I'm sure it's holding you back in a lot of certain ways. But what if those ways are there? What if Jesus is even in that? And God is even in that. And he would say, no, leave your place of isolation and your place of safety 
and re-engage with your weakness, unresolved, with your doubt, with your hurt, with those things, and watch what I can do with even your pain. The ultimate example of this is Jesus when he washed the disciples' feet. You know what he was doing there? He was giving us a picture of what his kingdom is like. And Peter took the stance that we so often take, and that is, don't wash my feet. Ew, don't touch that. That's gross. That's beneath you, Lord. You know, this part of me is beneath you. You're, you're too high and mighty for this. You're Lord, you're King, you're too important, you're too good, you're too holy to be touching this, this, this dirty place in me. And Jesus was saying, Peter, if you don't let me do this, you'll have no part of me. What, what was he saying? He was saying, this is, the exa- this is exactly where I've come to minister. This is exa- the, the, the dirtiest places of you. What if that becomes Jesus' sanctuary? Not the places you're doing well. Not necessarily the places that you're excelling in your spiritual life or whatever it is. What if I could mess with your mind a little bit here in the name of scripture? What if I could tweak you a little bit and say, what if your sanctuary, what if you started thinking of your worship house as the place that's, that's dirty? The place that's, that's, that needs his attention that instead of holding him out until you get it better, you could invite him closer and he would take off his robe and put the servant cloth over himself and he would kneel down and grab that dirty, stinky part of you and start lovingly washing and washing and washing and washing. The same kind of lesson is here with David. David's on the run. Really tempting for him to think of, well, I won't, I'll, I'll be king when this whole season ends. And God says, well, let's start now. Let's start right now on this journey. Go and help. These farmers work hard all year to till the soil, plant and cultivate the seed. And then finally, when the time came to harvest, the Philistines came and took it all. Can you imagine how, what a missed opportunity would be if David was sulking and too selfish and, and too self-focused to think about the tragedy that was going on with others? So much of the time, when he could use his, the lessons that he's learning, the resources that he's gaining from the wilderness, one of those being an army of 400 disenfranchised men at his disposal, men that had, be, that had a lot of whom had become his, um, had been there because they were on the run. They were um, criminals. They had used their talents in a different kind of way. And here David has the opportunity to say, let's use your skills for something selfless, something altruistic, something good. Let's redeem this. Do you have a question, Renee? Or a question? Uh, 22? 22, 21? Somewhere in there? I don't know. I don't know what, what exact verse. Yeah. God wanted David in a position to where he could serve and bless people more effectively. And here's the ironic part. He's using David's trouble to do it. That's, and I think that's one thing that we're learning as a church, as we're going through the wilderness times of David, God is using, he's even in your trouble. He's using the time, the conflict, the unresolve. He's using that to do something in you. And we're seeing uh, David both being prepared for the kingship that is before him, but also 
um, starting to become, act in, as a king, even before he's there. And so at, at, so at this call, David goes out um, to help. Um, the call goes out to David to come and help. And again, the reader, when you're reading this, you're struck with, shouldn't this be Saul's deal? Shouldn't this be Saul's deal? Isn't this Saul's responsibility as king? Exactly. That's the idea. You're struck with David's being a king and Saul is not, even though he's the official king and David is not. Saul is abandoning his post and David is picking it up. So Saul's it's interesting to know that Saul, what Saul is working against, the more he works against it, the more it's actually becoming true. <laughs> the more he's trying to obsess against David, the more David is starting to rise up and become exactly what Saul is afraid of. It's, he, it's becoming a self-fulfilled prophecy. So now, upon hearing this news, how should David respond? As the leader of these 400 men and their families, by the way, David has this huge responsibility. He's not now just looking out for himself in the wilderness. He's also got hurt people around him that he's also looking out for. And upon hearing this cry for help, he could immediately gear up his men and just impetuously go to save these people. That'd be one thing. Or he could say, man, we have enough problems of our own, guys. Let's just, let's just deal with our own stuff. And maybe at some point we'll, you know, we'll go and, and do this. And I think both responses are clearly wrong. The right way to respond is to do exactly what David did. Look what he does. He, it says, therefore, David first inquired of the Lord. And this is what he said in his prayer. This is a wilderness prayer. He said, shall I go and attack these Philistines? It's a prayer of surrender and willingness. Let me ask you guys this. What is the difference between the word willing, willing and willful? Think of those two words, willing and willful. Willingness and willfulness. What's the difference there? Okay, willfulness is... Okay, um, I think you're getting close. I want to nuance it a little bit, but I thank you for getting us closer. So the idea is willfulness, you have your own agenda, Right? You've got your own things that you want. You've got a willful agenda that's going on. And willingness is just doing what God wants you to do. Any other ideas? Okay, willingness is giving up your own understanding. Sure, there's, a, there's an idea in the word willing. Uh, there's an idea that comes to my mind. I wonder if it, with you guys too, the idea of surrender. Kind of, I, I get a picture of this, right? And willful, I get a picture of, of this. I'm in control or I want to control the information or whatever that is. The reason I want to get nuanced on this is because it, I think it would be a mistake to pit the two against each other. Willfulness certainly can go awry. But I think, I think instead of pitting the two together, we probably, need, we probably need both in a redeemed way. There are times in our lives where we need to be willful. We need to stick to what we know is right. We need to not budge or not bend. Sometimes we, in other words, 
Sometimes we need to grow a spine. And sometimes we need to grow a heart. Right? But I would say both go, both go hand in hand. I, I, I would say we need to be, sometimes, we need to be willfully willing. <laughs> sometimes we need to be willfully willing. In other words, I'm going to determine to surrender my heart to God. I'm going to use this willfulness that I have in the right direction and I'm going to willfully surrender to God. Even though it doesn't, I don't feel surrendered right now. I want to grab it. I want to hold on. I want to steer. I want to control. I want to manipulate. I want to coerce. I want to do all these things. But I'm going to use that momentum in me around and say, no, I'm going to willfully choose to surrender. And conversely, we need to be willing to be willful. Sometimes we need to be willing. Sometimes the act of surrender, God is saying, I want you to fight for this. I need you to advocate for this. I need you to fight for yourself and advocate or fight for this person and advocate for this person. So I would say instead of pitting the two against each other, they properly, when redeemed, go hand in hand. But I think what you're getting at, Renee, is still true. Where, where things mostly go awry, at least in me, and I would say most of us fallen creatures, where things mostly go awry is on the willful side. We, we want to manipulate. We want to control. You certainly see that in the text when we're comparing Saul and David. Saul is willful. He will have his, he's determined to keep the kingdom. He's determined for his legacy. And because of this squeezing out of all other possibilities, he's, he's squeezed out the ability to even serve God. And if you notice how tweaked his thinking is he's not outright in the front of his brain thinking to himself i'm fighting against god in fact when david goes down into Keilah, he says god has given david into my hands his brain is all tweaked where and that's what willfulness will do unredeemed willfulness will do let's just call it that it will justify my willful actions in the name of god right this is where all kinds of spiritual abuse happens, especially from guys like me and, and people in my order, um, in my vocation. Um, we have a tendency and a temptation to have a vision for where we think the church ought to go and to say, thus saith the Lord, you will help me, right? <laughs> you will show up early and you will stay late and you will... Uh, you know, all of those types of things. And if you don't, well, you're not, it's a faith issue. You're not following Jesus well enough. That's called, that's textbook spiritual abuse from, from, uh, from a pastor or from a spiritual leader. And it, it stems from a heart of willfulness. I want what I want. I want what I want. This can happen in marriage. This can happen in families. You know, I, I hear all sorts of stories of dads who Christian dads who use the Bible to justify getting the family to do what they want, and it causes all sorts of uh, problems throughout children's children's lives. That I've um, Nicole and I have dealt with the fallout in that with the kids that we've worked with in youth group, and in uh, throughout our years of of ministering, um, 
the fallout of someone and the confusion that that causes. Using the Bible and spiritual authority to get me to do what, I, what someone else wants me to do is so incredibly damaging. And that's where Saul is at. But it stems from this willfulness. It stems from fear. It stems from, I can't imagine not being king. If, if me not being king is synonymous with God not loving me. Right? So we can do that. In our, if, if I'm no longer in my company, that means God is through with me. If I'm no longer, okay, if, uh, let's get even more real. If my, if my spouse decides to leave and divorce me, that also means that God doesn't love me. All of those things cause us to go, no, I'm going to hold on. I'm going to manipulate. I'm going to control. But here, David is, David is where? What's the one thing that David had that Saul did not get? Someone say a wilderness. A wil- yes, a wilderness, Nathan. Absolutely. Saul was, Saul was right into the kingship. He didn't get a wilderness experience. He didn't get to suffer. He didn't get an experience where control is stripped away. That is one of the um, hallmarks of wilderness. You have no control anymore. You watch your family go through things that you can't fix. Someone makes a decision around the world that affects your life and you can do nothing about it. Or someone passes a law or, or whatever it might be. Or you watch your children go through something that you have no control to help them with. That there's something that it brings David to this point where he can go to God with an open hand and say, what do you want me to do? What do you want? I could stay or I could go. It's interesting that in the New Testament, when Paul, there's this famous story of Paul, or famous line that Paul has when he says, I've learned to be content in all things. If you read the overall context of that, he's talking about in the context of suffering. I'm almost close to saying, but I won't emphatically say it, but I'm almost close to saying that that through suffering, God taught Paul to be content in all things. I've learned contentment through my wilderness. Because wilderness strips us of control. We're to the point where we can come, what else can we do to say, fine, fine, have your way. What else can I do but trust you? What else do I have left but to trust you? Everything else has been stripped away. What else do I got? All I have is you. What do you want? I have no more agenda. Not my will, but yours be done. John the Baptist was out ministering and baptizing people in the wilderness. He is a wilderness figure, John the Baptist is. And what was his, what's his famous line about Jesus? He says, they, you know, his disciples come to him and they say, hey, uh, we've got to do something, John. Jesus' ministry is getting more popular. And if we don't do something, ours is going to fall apart. Remember what John said? He said, good. For I must become less and he must become greater. What is that? That is a, I'm letting go of control. Perfect love has now cast out the fear of losing this, of not having that. And here's the other thing. You don't know what these things are most of the time. Until you're in the wilderness. 
Like for, the, for those of you that, are, that uh, may not be going through a wilderness experience, chances are you're not very aware of the things, that you're, to, the idols that are in your life, the things that you must have. And the wilderness has this way of revealing that, has this way of showing what that is. Or you may have known before, but a wilderness makes it to where you really know. You know what I'm saying? Where you know things in your head, but then you go through a wilderness and you go, okay, now I know. Now I get it. Now I really know. Saul missed out on that. And now the things that could have been carved off and chiseled off through the wilderness are now coming back to rule his life. Like cancers that are taking over and ruining his spiritual life. Saul is a man that's being ran aground in his spiritual life. He is com becoming completely spiritually bankrupt. Why? He didn't have the luxury of a wilderness to bring this stuff up. Um, my favorite president, James Garfield, said that he was shot in the back and um, he died super slow. He was, uh, in fact, it could have been prevented. He was shot in the back by a, an assassin. The, bu bullet, the bullet lodged in his spine. And his physician believed the, that he, he would just drain his blood. It was, it, the medical practice was bloodletting. And he, so he just, he just kept draining Garfield's blood. And the people around um, the president at this time reported that the more weak he got, the worse he got, the more sweet of a man he became. Really interesting. And I don't know if you know the story. It's a beautiful story. Uh, they actually, he loved, the president loved, he was a sailor. Even though he had never really sailed, he loved the idea of the ocean. And as he was dying, we built him train tracks that would go to the sea. Did you guys know this? We built him train tracks and, and on his own train, we hoisted him upon a train and, and for his death wish, we, we drove him out to the ocean so he could die by the ocean. And one of the greatest things that he said was, he said, um, the, storms are, uh, the storms of life, he said, I'm going to paraphrase because I'm going to not be able to say it perfectly, but you'll get the point. The storms of life shake up the sea bottom of a man and reveal what's really there. And what he meant by that was hurricanes would come through the ocean and the, the old wreckages, the downed ships, the dead bones were all being trapped by the sand and the sand, uh, you know, trapped them. And the hurricane would come through and it would shake it up and loosen that sea bottom and everything that's really there comes bloop to the top of the surface. And in his case, sweetness came out. Beauty came out right? Um, I, that's what the wilderness does for us. David had stuff that he needed to be aware of that only the wilderness could show him. This is not a shaming thing. It's an awareness thing. When you go through a wilderness and, and your ugly starts coming up, I don't want you to shame yourself and say, oh, bad Christian. That anger shouldn't be there. I want you to say, oh, this is the new sanctuary. This is where God's going. This is the feet that he's washing in me. This is the sin that he's going after in me. And thank God for the wilderness. I wouldn't have known it was there unless this happened. Ah, with the Apostle Paul, okay, I'm, I'm learning to be content in all things. 
Because God is at hand. What's the secret of contentment? This. I let go. I let go. I let go. Jesus in his wilderness was in a garden. And boy, he wanted out. He wanted out so bad he's sweating blood. And he cried a cry, such a human cry. I'm sure a cry that's been on your lips and on your heart many times. Oh God, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. I'm going to let it go. Surrender. This is what I'm telling you is the posture of David's prayer in the wilderness. Over and over again. Should I go? I'm willing. Should I go? Um, and the Lord said, go and attack the Philistines. So, um, but David's men, the people that are following him, they have a problem with this. <laughs> they say to him, hey, we're already super scared right now. Um, this sounds, this sounds foolish. Shouldn't we be thinking, I mean, look, I've got my own family to deal with. I, I think they should come first. Um, we're just trying to survive out here. David, we're, we're sleeping in a cave. We're on the run. I really feel like we should just be quiet, lay low. I know it's grieving you that all this stuff's going on in the world. The Philistines are breaking in, but look, I get that. But when you're king, we can do something about it, right? Like, save all this energy up, David, and when you're king, just release it, let it out. But right now, stay the way it is. And so what does David do? He goes back to the Lord. <laughs> So here's this great balance. David doesn't say, follow me, I'm your leader. Do what I say. That's it. You know, he doesn't do that. He, and, nor does he capitulate. Does he say, okay, I think you're right. Does he vacillate back and forth? Again, just notice his heart. He goes back to God. He realizes that the men around him are data points to consider. Right? He listens to the people that are around him as valid uh, possible um, ways that God could be speaking to him. And I think that's the posture that we, that's the posture of a surrendered person from the wilderness. It's, it's humble. Notice he's a leader, but he's a humble leader. Saul is not doing this. Saul is saying, I'm now going to control the narrative of what God says and what God does not say. I will decide what's of God. And David being locked in the city is now, this is God doing this. He's God's giving him into my hand. And then Saul also gets to decide what God is not doing. He's controlling the state media completely. He's the one controlling the narrative here because he's so much in control. He's not listening to the people around him and the people around him are scared to death to talk to him. And the last time someone talked frankly to Saul, he had him, their family, and their city killed. 
Saul is not to be trifled with. He's not surrendered. He is proud. He is so weak and so insecure. The more proud and stubborn in his way it's got to be. David, on the other hand, he believes he hears from God, but he also has great respect for the men that are around him. Even though they might be broken, criminals, they have past and everything else. He goes, okay, I want to know what's going on here. So he goes back, he goes back to the Lord. I think that's another sign that someone's been in a wilderness. Those of us that have been in the wilderness, we don't think that we are the end-all be-all. What's marked by us is a, is a humility that says, okay, I'm going to listen. When Nicole and I were first married, I hope you don't mind if I share the story. Probably should have asked you first. Yeah, brace yourself. Um, when Nicole and I were first married, we had an opportunity. We, we had... We had gone to, I, I used to um, lead music, uh, these, these rock and roll kind of worship bands. And um, a mission organization that planted churches in Russia had asked us to come out and lead worship and do um, concerts to um, uh, bring, aware, bring awareness to a church. They'd either be planting a church or they'd be continuing a church. And so Nicole and I and our band would go out and we would play music and we would do these concerts. And they were, I mean, they were, I mean, if you can imagine concerts where no Christians are there except the musicians, it was amazing. We would fill out these old theaters, these old, very old theaters, I think back from the um, early 1900s, these beautiful kind of stacked theaters. We would do concerts every night of the week. And you guys, it'd be packed out with people. Um, and I mean, we, I remember at one point we had to like screen people at the door because people were bringing guns and knives in. And it was just the perfect crowd to tell about Jesus. Seriously, from an evangelist point of view, it's like sweet. Not an evangelistic, uh, you know, event filled with Christians. <laughs> this is actually, this is wonderful. And so we would have these things and we would share the gospel and people would get saved and it was just so powerful. And they had asked Nicole and I to live in Russia. They had asked us to come to live a life of touring the whole country, sharing the gospel and training Russian folks how to play quality music for the Lord. And they were going to help us do this and raise funding for us and this whole thing. And I did not inquire of the Lord about this. I was just like, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, what, why do I need to pray? And so we were just gung-ho going to do this. And I remember Nicole would just lovingly say, gosh, you know, it's exciting, but I have a weird feeling about it. I've been praying and I just have this feeling, I don't know if we should do this. And I, would, I honestly, I just kind of ignored her. I kind of was like, uh-huh, yeah. And then, because I just wanted it so bad. I wanted to do it. I wanted the life so bad. And I thought, and I, in my mind, I had pulled us all. This is God's will. This is what God's called us to do. And if you just had more faith, I mean, that's what was going on in my little, in my young 21-year-old brain. And I remember I was on the phone with one of my, with a, a mentor of mine. 
I was talking to him, and he was saying, are you getting so excited? Um, you know, you're, you're getting ready to go. This is so fun. Yeah, it's so great. And I said, yeah, and I made some quick comment, and I can't remember what I said, but something like, man, I just wish Nicole would get more on, on board. And he said, wait a second, what? And I said, well, Nicole's just not really completely there. She has a little, she has some doubts and things like that. And, he, and I tried to keep talking, and he wouldn't let me. He said, Mike, your wife does, isn't on board with this? And he said, hey, you listen to your wife. She is godly, she loves the Lord, and she's an incredible human being. Stop what you're doing and listen to your wife. And it hurt so good because I, I you know, it hurt because I, I was full steam ahead. And if you know me, especially the younger me, I had a lot of mental momentum. When I wanted to do, get something done, it was just like, full, you know, we're, do, we're doing this. And um, I went back to Nicole and we decided to pray about it together. And um, because of that, we ended up not going and gosh, because of that, we're probably here right now. I, I mean, who knows where life would have taken us if we had gone down that road. Um, that's what a wilderness will do. A wilderness will, will give you a sense of, okay, there's pe- God has given people around me that are smart, that are valuable, that love him, that, uh, that I need to take in. They're not always right, and neither am I but I need to go back to the Lord and inquire of the Lord. And that is the attribute of David that he has here. He inquires of the Lord, and this time God guarantees victory. So now David can go in confidence. Can you imagine, can you imagine, I mean, we're, it's hard for us in the city, in a, in a Western, a modern Western world, because we don't really go to war. You know, you know we don't, uh, I mean, none of us, Thank God, except for the movies we watch, but none of us have ever been at war. You know, and, and war for us these days, for the most part, is somebody here with a Starbucks pushing a button and somewhere around the world explodes. You know, we, we have no emotional connection to it. We don't really know what's happening. But can you imagine David and his men where warfare was very face-to-face and you, I mean, think of this, you, you every hit and block was a a fight for your life or a fight for that person's life. And if you were to strike them, you would watch the life drain out of their, I mean, think of this. That was the the culture and the, the world that they were in. Can you imagine going into a battle like that, knowing for sure, for sure you're going to win? Can you imagine the, the, the level of confidence, humble confidence you would have knowing I mean, you'd be, you, what would you be? Indestructible. You understand that? You'd be indestructible. Even if people died. Even if the, if the seemingly worst happened. If you were that sure in your mind, you could handle anything. Right? You could handle anything. Think of what Jesus said about the church. He said, on this rock I will build my church and the weapon and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. What would you do? Let me ask you this. How would you defeat a weapon that could not be beaten? How would you defeat a weapon that could not be beaten? 
If you were to face a warrior that was guaranteed to win, let me just get it closer so you can tell where I'm going with this. If you were Satan, if you were the devil, and you were going to fight a church that was guaranteed to win, how would you fight that church? Prayer? The, the devil praying? No, no, I'm saying if you were the devil, just imagine if you had the horns and you were evil, and you were going to fight the church from within. from within, okay? Yeah, I think that's... Make them weak. How would you make them weak? Here's what, but even in that, exactly, get them to think that they, they can't win, that they cannot win. Get them to think that they cannot win. Get them to think that they are weak. Get them to think that they're going to be defeated. Get them to think that life is precarious. Get them to think about the here and now and forget about heaven and the, and the whole story. Get them to think. My point is, spiritual warfare is a mental battle here. Um, there's a story uh, of how, you know, of how folks, when there used to be a circus, before those things were shut down, um, and how they used to train elephants. Have you guys, have I said this before? Um, they used to, you know, uh, somebody would buy a baby elephant, and to get it to stay in one place to start training it, they would put a collar around it, and they would tie it to a, a little rope and they would put the stake in the ground and the rope, and as much as the elephant tried to get away, the elephant can't do it. But what's interesting is even when the elephant grows to an adult, like, you know, several ton huge elephant, they still make it stay in one place by tying it to a little rope that it could, it could snap like a wet noodle. Um, and I was reading about this and the person said, it's not that... The ele- it's not that the, the chain or the rope can hold the elephant. It's that the elephant thinks it can. The strength in the mind. That is where the battle is. We're, going, we're in the wilderness. And the battle is for your, your mind. And here, through prayer, God gives David a, a guarantee. You are going to win. The same way that he's given that to you and me. You are going to win. In, in, in the, in the, it's, it's still going to be a battle. It's going to be a fray. There's going to be chaos. There's going to be losses. There's going to be injuries. Battles are not organized neat. And, you know, war is not organized neat and really, you know, perfect. It is, it is war. It's messy. It's hard. You're going to go through that. But you will win. What's that other verse that says, and no weapon formed against them will prosper? Not your own failure, not sin, not disease, not uh, geopolitics, not the economy, not the, the infighting in your family. Here's another one. It's one of our favorites. You know it, but I, I really feel like I should just read it. Um, this is how this is how Paul felt about it. No, in all these things, that's a wilderness. In all these things, that's disease, sin, hurt. In all these things, we are more. What are we? 
we're more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure, persuaded, another translation will say, convinced. What is he talking about? He's talking about mentality. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. That's a word that means just fill in the blank. Whatever else I missed, put that in there. I've heard some pastors, and it just drives me nuts, say, but it doesn't mention that, see, you yourself can keep it yourself out of God. Our, last I checked, we are one of creation. We, we, last I checked, we are a part of all of creation. You can add yourself in there. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. You're in the fray. People are screaming. Blood is spraying. You're fighting. It's visceral. It's emotional. It's intense. That's the wilderness. That's the life that we're in. And, he's, and he calls you to fight even though you might be injured. Even though you're dealing with your own stuff and you're hiding in the cave of Adullin, he says, get out there and fight even though you're injured. In fact, fight with your injury. Fight with your weakness and see what I'll do. And it's not clean. It's hard. And he says, but I'm convinced. And all of what you're going through friends. Again, I said this last week. It's so true. We, we are. There's a lot of people suffering and hurting in our church. This really is for us. It's messy. Life's not going the way we planned. In all of these things, you are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. There will be a day where red crimson robes dress, dra- draped over the ashes a wide open tomb where there should be a casket. Our children are singing and dancing and laughing. Roses pushed up through the embers. Tears that are flowing from good times remembered. Think of this. We will be together. Our families are singing and dancing and laughing. Heaven joins in with a glorious sound. And this great cloud of witnesses all gathered around because the ones that were lost are finally found. That is your future and that is reality. This is our homecoming. It's time for us to leave our caves of Adullam, even with our hurts, and go out and fight with grace Humility, vigor, love, knowing it's going to be messy and hard. There will be loss. There's confusion in battles. Sometimes you're so into it that you start fighting your own person, you, you know, your own teammates. That's part of it. You look say, sorry, keep moving forward. Keep going. Why? Because someday all the should have beens will be. Isn't that what the cross says? Jesus went to the cross and in weakness he won. The disciples that day, think of their perspective. They're sitting there looking at Jesus. Think, I, I, by the way, pause. 
Has anybody watched the Chosen series? Okay, I, I would really, 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 really recommend that you watch this series called The Chosen. It's, it's done with artistic license, but it's also got a scholarly background. They did a lot of great research. Um, there's two seasons. The third one's being, being uh, filmed as we speak. It takes you on a journey of following Jesus through the eyes of the disciples. And it really shows really kind of a raw, authentic view of Jesus and his disciples and what it would be. Can you imagine being them, following this rabbi for three years, knowing that he's the Davidic king and hearing him confirm that he's the Davidic king? When you, when you hear the word king, do you have, what do you, what do you hear, what, what are some words parked right next to king? Conqueror, um, you know, triumphant, courage, leader. These are the things that were in their disciples, in the disciples' mind. They were thinking, this is where, this is where this is going. That our discipleship to this rabbi is going to turn into an administration for a king, a Davidic administration. Oh, there's 12 of us. There were 12 tribes of Israel. There's 12 of us. I see where he's going with this. He's going to take the king and we're going to be over the 12 tribes. This is where this is going. And then, so imagine that. Now imagine being at the foot of the cross, seeing this man that you've given everything to, such risk. You've written a blank check to him. I'm trusting you with my life. I'm getting on board with this vision. My family has taken sacrifices. Peter was married. He, he spent more time with Jesus than probably his family following him around, all of these things. And there he is, dying humiliatingly on a cross in weakness. Jesus is not dying valiantly. You know that. We have this American idea of Jesus like he's just like, come on, bring it. You know, like, like no, you know what he was saying? He was saying, he was weeping in doubt. My God, where are you? There are several more characters in history that have died more courageous deaths than Jesus Christ. You know that. What are you thinking as a disciple? What have I done? I gave my whole life for this man. I don't think they were thinking that. See, you know that, Kristen, because you know the end of the story. The disciples, even though they had been told, they didn't get it. I don't think they knew that until the three days later. But they're thinking, I think, their worlds are crashing down. This is their wilderness where everything they had pinned their hopes on failed Imagine the emotions. Was he lying? Was I betrayed? Am I foolish? Oh, I gave up everything. I feel so embarrassed. Peter showed it. Valiant, courageous Peter. Even when he was following Jesus to, and seeing him getting, getting beat, Peter was like, I don't know this guy. Jesus 
And yet resurrection, like Kristen, you're right. He will win in the end. Absolutely. Sometimes our lives are like we're at the foot of the cross and we don't see any good that could possibly come from this. The disciples, I prom- or they were all gone. John was there. But John was probably not thinking. He was probably thinking, I don't see anything good coming from this. He didn't see anything good coming from this. And yet this act of defeat, this bloody, confusing, visceral, emotional act of defeat. It says that when when Jesus gave up his last, last breath with a cry, it was not a victory cry. It was a cry of watching something die in agony and just give up. Ah! How that sound must have echoed in his mind all that evening, all that night, into the next, for the next three days. That scene. And yet that's become the victory. Now we wear that as a necklace. or We, we, we love the cross because it is our victory. Your life is a cross moment. You know, that's what a wilderness is. It's filled with situations that don't seem redeemable. But they are. They are. You've been guaranteed victory. You've been guaranteed victory. If you're following Jesus, he will use your weaknesses. And don't wait until you're better again. Don't wait till you have a handle. Get out there and fight. Get back in there. Fight for your families. Fight for your marriages. Fight for your coworkers. Fight for your society with love and humility and joy and peace and your weakness. Because that's where resurrection comes. Church should not, in my opinion, be a place where we forget about our trouble. Like a magic world where there, we have our own language and it seems kind of too heavenly minded to be any good for the earth. I want to apply the grace of God and the message we heard this morning to our wilderness. So think, let's face it together. And let's inquire of the Lord. And can you, is there anything that your wilderness is revealing about you? Is there anything that you have a a closed fist around? Anything that you refuse to give up, you refuse to surrender? Anyone that you refuse to give up and to surrender? Like Jesus say, not my will, but yours be done. Can you ungrip and release to him?